Hello and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a human-centred design practitioner based in Australia. The episode that you're about to hear was recorded in Melbourne CBD, so I'd like to acknowledge the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as our traditional custodians of the land where we meet today and pay respect to their elders, both past and present. Shirley Ryan is what she calls a transdisciplinary design practitioner, merging many design disciplines into one super force. Anyone who is familiar with Cheryl will know that she's a no-holds-barred speaker and person. She says what she means, and she means what she says, and is a force to be reckoned with. We were recently together on a design panel about designing for social impact for Academy XI in Sydney, and had a whale of a time. We caught up in Melbourne to extend that conversation and go deeper into areas that we touched on, such as, are we making things better with design? And also, what shoes would Cheryl wear in a zombie apocalypse? And what does the future of design look like through Cheryl's eyes? This was such a fun episode to record with everyone, so let's jump straight in. Shirley Ryan, a very warm welcome to the This Is HCD podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Cheryl, for people listening to the podcast, we were on a, a recent design panel where we were talking about design for social good. It was with Academy XI in Sydney. The guys um, have sponsored this episode, uh, oh, I think. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, with $500 going to Caracare, which is amazing. So thanks to the guys at Academy XI. But before we did that design panel, we'd actually been emailing back and forth about certain topics about, are we making things better? And it was a topic that resonated with you as well. And I was like, great, I've got somebody else I can have a good conversation with about this topic. Where it came from with that topic with me was, I often sit back and, and I look at the world and kind of go, well, there's lots of design going on at the moment, but are we actually making it better? So what are your thoughts on when you hear that? I would say every single day, a thought passes through my mind which is, are we doing it wrong? And it's something that I think about quite frequently. Whether, you know, did humanity just go off on a strange tangent somewhere along the evolutionary path and we ended up where we we are now? Because there's so many things that are in the world that we've put in the world that seem to be broken. Mm. Because I don't know about you, but... I feel like I'm constantly fixing things or at least thinking about fixing things. You know, whether it be that I go to a hotel and the experience just doesn't feel right or I catch public transport and something doesn't work or I'm using, you know, a product or service and it doesn't do what the package says. Yeah, the branding is off. So one of the things that I'd mentioned to you earlier was like, as designers, most of us believe in delivering the best possible outcomes for our clients. And I often question if these outcomes, though, in absence of ethical consensus, are causing us as a civilization to regress. And what if collectively our efforts are competing and causing undue stress to mankind? I know it's such a big topic, but when you speak to people who are in their 60s and 70s and then they sit down and they're like, I don't know how you do it what do you have to do and you have to arrange and you're dry cleaning there and you're after doing this? And I was like, how much more stuff can we fit into a day? Is that what we're aiming for? Like collectively, what are we trying to do? So this is a bit of a long-winded way to get to the answer to that question, but I was in New York a couple of weeks ago and I only took two pairs of shoes with me. And one of them was a pair of dock boots, really big, heavy, 18-hole dock boots. And uh, I thought, for sure, this is going to be great. It's wintertime. They'll be perfect. So I was wearing them and I got a huge blister and they really hurt me and it was terrible because I was walking around a lot. 
And it occurred to me that they were definitely not the pair of shoes that I should park beside my bed in case there's a zombie apocalypse. (laughs) So I was thinking about which shoes I would keep next to my bed just in case of the zombie apocalypse. And that got me thinking about whether or not there will be a zombie apocalypse because we're already living the zombie apocalypse right now. You know, is this actually a time where we're doing all of these things and perhaps instead of brains that we'd be munching on, it's data and information and distraction? It definitely, like, I question at the point of are we at the boiling point or has the boiling point reached or how far away are we at from that boiling point? Has judgment day arrived and are we on the other side of it or is it yet to come? Well, you know, I mean, there was a lot of talk about a singularity. Tell us what that is. I've heard this mentioned a few times and several people have described it to me differently. (laughs) I think that's probably because there's a number of definitions, but in my mind, I guess it's when you reach critical mass of technology. Mm. But I think it's the other direction that we need to be worried about. It might be that, you know, I remember in 1999, all the hype around what would happen with the Y2K bug. But imagine if we got slapped back to zero. Maybe that would actually be a good thing if that happened. I don't know. But I don't think we're at any risk of the singularity happening. I think that we're probably closer to the opposite end of the scale. I know from designing services and designing products, a lot of the times designers go through the process and they try to make things quicker. And they're like, oh, the user can get their, their job done by doing this, 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 and you know, it'd save them you know, a couple of clicks and it'd save them some time. But then that time, you know, time is, is infinite in, in a lot of ways. They just go and replace it with something else. So over time, are we actually saving them time? Are, are they using that time to go and spend with their loved ones? Probably not. They're going to scroll on Facebook and they're going to go on to Instagram or LinkedIn. And it's one of the questions that I, that I really I struggle with when we're designing systems. Is that the goal? To save time. It's an interesting question. A while ago, I started thinking about my own personal model around time. I've got quite an interest in time as currency. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking about all of the things that are, I guess, that are important in my life. And I actually came up with four things that I think of as currency within my own life. So that's money, obviously. Time is the second one. Attention. So the attention that I give to others and energy. So the energy that I expend doing various things. And the funny thing about time is that it actually isn't infinite. Our lives as humans are so incredibly short. You know, if we're lucky, we get roughly 80 years here. In the relative term of Of time, time, that's a blip. That's nothing. Yeah. So it's a miracle that the sun comes up every day and that we get that time to see this. The question I have is, you know, all the things that we do, all the things that we expend our time, our money, our energy, our attention on, are they really the things that we should be? And as designers, should we be encouraging that expenditure through the things that we design or should we be trying to help people understand how to use those things in their own lives better by making things that don't encroach on on those things. So like one of the questions that I have and you know I'm I'm a new father like my daughter is 14 months old and 
I already see the patterns emerge when she holds my phone and holds my iPad. And I'm kind of interested to see how she does it from a designer's perspective. I'm like, actually, you know, she's interacting with these things. But then the backside of it is kind of going, well, actually, I don't want her to get involved too early with technology. It's it's detrimental to their mental health. You know that if you expose kids to things too early, it's not going to be good in the long term. And I was reading a report recently where it was stating that kids that were born between the years of 2011 to 2015, I think it's something like 70% more likely that they're going to have a mental health illness due to smartphone usage. Now, when you look at the smartphone usage, is it because they're using smartphones or is it because you're taking them away from the face-to-face interaction with others? Now, that's what I'm kind of questioning. I'm sort of saying to myself, if we're all designing these systems... And we know Facebook has been awful like for, for mankind. I'd really welcome anyone to, to kind of challenge me on that. Like it's, it's, they've used a lot of dark UX to try and get that loop in, seductive UX, whatever you want to call it. But what are we trying to do here? You know, are we trying to really make sure that mankind is in a better place than when we arrived here? To me, that's one of my mantras. And we spoke about that the other night as well. Like you leave things better than when you, when you found it. And... When we entered in the design world, well, for me it was 2002, and now it's 2018, has it got better? Probably not. Oh, I don't know that it's got better. So there's a couple of things that this makes me think about. So the first thing is that I recently watched a documentary called Kaching, and it's a documentary about slot machines or poker machines in Australia very specifically and an organisation called Aristocrat. All right, I do know Aristocrat, yeah. And Aristocrat are not only the biggest supplier of poker machines in Australia, but also worldwide they're seen as being the benchmark for for poker machines. And um, this documentary talks to designers, various different kinds of designers, everybody from visual designers to sound designers that work on these things and about the methods that they use to trap people because the thing about poker machines is that you can never win. They're designed so that you don't win. And it's super interesting because they are probably, I guess, one of the first serious forms of dark UX utilisation. Yeah. Right? Very, very seriously using dark UX. And I, I think that probably what Facebook and various other things have done over the past few years is probably not dissimilar to what is actually happening when you play a poker machine. Yeah. No matter if you win or lose it plays a positive sound, which is a type of positive reinforcement mm. that feeds your serotonin yeah. that makes you feel like something good happened. Yeah, you've got a response. So, you, yes, exactly, you get a positive response. So you think that by continuing to do it that you'll keep getting a positive yeah. response. And there's some in, actually in the um, documentary, there's some really great footage of an experiment w- that was done probably in the 70s or something like that with rats and the randomization of reward and that if you get random rewards, that is much more addictive. That's how addiction works. If you get consistent reward, that doesn't work. So if you know that if you keep pressing a button at the same speed and you would get the same reward, you'll get bored and you won't do it. Yeah. But if you press and you never know if it's going to be a reward or not that's when you get addicted to something yeah that's where the 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 addiction is made it's formed when we were chatting the other night i mentioned to you about a scenario in 2014 i had this conversation with an old man in a pub and i was checking my phone i was waiting for my mates to come along 
and I was home, so it's usually like, you know, like, where are they? Like, I've already had three points and it's only quarter past seven. I've been sitting there for 15 minutes. And he said to me, like, I've noticed you've been doing all these things on your phone. And I explained to him what I was doing. And he said that, talking in, in spiels about going back in time, he said if he was able to get the 30-year-old self and he was able to put it back into the present day, he said he believes he would have a stroke and he would die. Okay? He said the world had become a much louder place. He said, it's faster. He said, you're doing so much more. And it got me really thinking. I was like, actually, maybe there's something in that. Like our grandparents, if they were to witness us now, you know, would they think that is what success looks like? Being able to get all those tasks done in a day, you know, to be able to achieve all these things. But what are we really replacing it with? The weird thing is, I'm thinking about that in my own context. And I'm not sure if I really get that much done. Yeah, I feel like I think I'm getting a lot done, but I think I'm getting less done than I actually think am. you are. Yeah, that I think I am. Yeah, and I think that somehow being busy and always being on hmm. has become our metric for success. Yeah, it's our way. badge of honor as well. Like. Yeah, the longer that you stay at work, hmm. the more hours that you do each week. Yeah, you know, the further that you go, the more miles that you do. Yeah. The more flights that you do, you know, I mean, I'm a huge fan of <laughs> promoting. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I'm really into Qantas points. So, um, you know, getting platinum status is, is a big deal for me. Yeah. But we've been like con- most Australians because it means you can get out of the island. Oh, exactly. Oh, God. <laughs> you need it to get out of the island. Yeah. Uh, it's become a, a measure of success yeah. to do more. And, you know, societal success, though. Well, or your success? I think societal success. I think that it's a pressure that is put on us. Mm. That all of these things, you know, you need to have this, you need to have that. You need to earn more. You need to have a loan. You need to have a house. Yeah. But all of these things. Does it make the world better? No, I don't think it does. But this is something, my partner and I, we were talking about this and I mentioned the words grid edge. Ooh. You heard it here first, everyone. <laughs> oh, I'm not the first, but apparently I'm not the first person to think of this, but in a different context. So there is such a thing that's called grid edge that's related to the energy industry. That's not what I intended mm-hmm. it to be. What I meant by grid edge was thinking, I'm very interested in punk and the history of punk yeah. in particular. Um, and uh, I was thinking of straight edge and what straight edge means. And I thought to myself, okay, well, we're having a conversation about if it was possible to get off the grid. Yeah. And we were going through scenarios and we came to the conclusion it's almost impossible to truly live off grid Mm -hmm. because one way or another you're going to have to interact with the system system somehow. Whether it be that you got sick and you had to go to hospital or even to get food, you might need to get it from someone who's – inevitably grown it through a grid-like process. Yes. So we decided that maybe it wasn't possible to live off-grid, but we were talking about whether or not it was possible to live edge-grid yeah. or grid-edge. Yeah. Right. So what that basically means is that you would live on the edge of the grid. You couldn't contribute to the grid, so you couldn't buy anything through the grid, but you could exchange for things that already existed from the date that you became grid edge if that makes sense okay so you'd have to find ways of getting things within the system for free yeah you couldn't pay for them 
it's like a subsystem within the system. Yeah. And I mean, that would probably take all of your energy just to figure out how to do it. How to do it. Yeah. But uh, there probably is a way if there's anybody listening that is doing this, I yeah. would be most interested in having a conversation about this very thing. Because again, coming back to what I said earlier, this thought that I literally wake up in the morning mm. with on my mind is that we're doing it wrong. Yeah. It feels the way that we have become so systematically capitalized is probably not necessarily natural for humans. The reason that I think this is so recently I got a new puppy. Yeah. What type? Um, he's a People bulldog. People are listening. Are we going to wonder what type it was? A bulldog. He's a bulldog. Okay. I hung out with a bulldog yesterday. They're he's, crazy. He's pretty cute. Can he breathe? Um, yeah, he can. Okay. He can. It's always a plus with the bulldogs. It's very good. He's got, he's, he was DNA tested, so he's really quite sound. So we got him when he's eight weeks old. He's now nearly 12 weeks old. And, you know, he came out born with everything that he needs to be a dog. Yeah. Right? You don't have to put clothes on him. You don't have to put shoes on him. He doesn't need an iPhone. Yeah. He doesn't need anything. I mean, he needs to be fed, but if he was in the wild, he could probably figure it out. Yeah, as long as he didn't have to run very far. <laughs> True that. <laughs> um, but it just seems to me that... We have everything. We have everything that we need. Yeah. What are we doing wrong? Yeah, it's like this Louis C.K. sketch that he did about, must be about 14 years ago now, where like, everything is brilliant and we don't know it. Yeah. You know, he tells the story of the, the guy, he's on the plane, he's flying from Los Angeles to New York, and this is probably in 2006, 2007, maybe actually when he was telling the story. And the air host comes up on you know, the, the aisle and he goes, hey, everybody, we've got Wi-Fi. Um, open up your laptops and off you go. And at that stage, it was a real novelty to have Wi-Fi in the planes. And Louis C.K. opens up his laptop and the guy beside him opens up the laptop. And then about two minutes later, they go, we're sorry, like, the internet's down. And the guy beside him goes, fuck this, this is shit, bullshit. And basically saying, like, how quickly the world owed that guy something after two minutes of free Wi-Fi. So maybe it's a case that, you know, things are great, but we just don't really appreciate it. The flip side of that argument earlier I was saying. Yeah, totally. I, I feel like my ideal job would be as a kind of undesigner. So a job where my clients pay me to assess what they have and kind of take things away. Yeah. Because we just have too much stuff. And I mean, there's a, a guy on LinkedIn that you should totally follow. His name's Tom Goodwin. He's very interesting, happens to be a marketing dude, but, you know, don't hold that against him. Really interesting guy. And he posted this, this post where he basically said, we live in a world full of shit design. And he's right. Because I don't know how many of you are fixing things all the time, but I know I am. Mm. Most of the time, you know, when we talk about digital transformation, that's probably... The big thing. That's really what yeah. we're doing. We're fixing... The BAU. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lack of that strategic vision. And I know I'm, I'm reading, um, Andy Blaine told me to read Liminal Thinking and I had the book, haven't done it, but um, there's a really good quote in it, which I can't really remember to <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, but it's basically about transparency and give visibility is the key to everything and what we do is service designers and human-centered designers i play more on the service design than human-centered design but it's giving that visibility to the ecosystem and also not just that ecosystem it's the ecosystem and the ecosystem as they merge and as they touch like the savannas of the plains in africa because that's where there's a lot of bountiful goodness happening much to what you're talking about earlier about the the grid edge and it was really really interesting so 
what are your thoughts? Like, you know, we've spoken a little bit about it's actually pretty bad. Like, you know, we, we've acknowledged the fact that there could be some serious mental health risks associated with so much technology and are we actually achieving anything? And I'd be flipped over to the other side of the conversation by saying, well, actually, things could be pretty good. But what does it look like for you in 20 years, you know, as design's role magnifies? And I think in the next five, 10 years globally, design is going to become a real powerhouse. But I don't think it's going to be the only powerhouse. I think there's going to be other faculties that really aid that. But what does it look like in 20 years' time? What will the design have achieved? Well, my background is visual design. Yeah. So I started out as a visual designer. And over the past, let's say 10 years ago, 10 to 15 years ago, there was a big movement towards minimalism in visual design. So there's been a movement recently in terms of your life. Yeah, the minimalists. The minimalist movement. Who happened to be coming to Melbourne in the next few weeks, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So there's been this movement around minimising the things that you have in your life. And it strikes me if it's possible to apply minimalism to visual design, that it would be possible to apply minimalism to other forms of design, say system design or experience design or whatever you want to apply it to. Again, by taking things away rather than continuously adding more and more and more. And, um, you know, we were talking earlier about something that I describe as the hypernormalization of simplicity, which I think that you could say that perhaps UX has a lot to speak for. Um, Answer for? Answer for, yes. Um, In what what sense? What do you mean by that? (laughs) What I mean by the hypernormalization of simplicity is that we have created essentially a kind of thin crust on the top of very complex systems that is a bit like, it's a facade, let's say, that makes things appear simple Mm. on the surface. But in actual fact, there's a huge amount of complexity that is required to actually make things run the way that they appear. So the best example of this that I can give is if you imagine the complexities involved with running Netflix. It seems so simple on the surface. You buy an account, it costs you a couple of dollars a month. You turn it on any time, so long as you have an internet connection, you can pretty much watch whatever you want, whenever you want, immediately. We get pissed off if it takes a few minutes just and you see that wheel turning and you're like, come on, I want to see my you know, black mirror now. I don't want to wait. Um, but in actual fact, what's lying under the surface of what's on our screen is an incredibly complex system that is required to deliver that to millions of people all over the world. I mean, we don't think about what that actually looks like, that there's these server farms hidden away somewhere with thousands and thousands and thousands of computers purring away to push those shows out to millions of people amongst a bunch of other technical stuff that has to happen to make it happen. And that doesn't even get into the realm of the energy that it takes to actually do that, mm. both at the user end and at the, yeah. the source. You know, that's just one example of literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of examples mm. of that simple facade or crust that sits on top of everything mm. um, that we interface with. Wouldn't it be interesting, though, if you imagine 
organizations had uh, a killer jewel associated to them. So like say the, the likes of Coca-Cola, the amount of energy that is required to deliver that service, be it like bottles, be it like applications, like the systems require energy that require fossil fuels and require everything. But like some of the bigger organizations will require more energy to deliver those services. So if you imagine we were able to visibly see those brands and those organizations and how much it actually costs to run in terms of like effect on the earth. So the likes of Apple is a really good one or Amazon. Like how much energy do they require to deliver that service? I think it would be fantastic. There's an excellent video which I will give you so that you can post it somewhere for people to see. I'll put it in the show notes. It was done by a few years ago by two Deakin students. I don't know their names. And it's about the journey of the making of a Coke can. They were industrial design students. Oh, okay. Of course they were. Yeah. I would like to say that's all always good, but not always. <laughs> so um, it's a really great visualisation of that story because when you buy a can of Coke, right, yeah. you're not thinking about what's beyond the can of Coke. You're just thinking about, I'm thirsty and I would really like some of that sweet, sweet black goodness. That nectar. That <laughs> nectar of the gods. You know, because what happens is that there's aluminium that needs to be processed. And, you know, in this video, it talks about how it goes from South Australia to America and then it gets yeah. pressed and printed and filled with delicious the black stuff. The ink that goes on it. <laughs> everything. And then it gets shipped out. And then all of these things take place. Not to mention a whole bunch of other back-end system stuff that has to happen to make it happen. Third-party suppliers and God knows what else. Ingredients. Oh, everything. There's so many. There's so many layers. And if you think about how much a can of Coke costs, does that cost actually relate to the actual cost of doing it? Because if you think of the impact that making that one can of Coke has, it's disparate. Yeah. It, so I'll give you another example of this, right? So apparently... I don't know, have you ever bought a T-shirt off ASOS? Um, probably a long time ago. So apparently one ASOS T-shirt, like yeah. a white T-shirt, takes 10 litres of water to make. It's actually, I'm part of the RSA uh, and we did a, a talk with a guy from Brisbane who creates ethically sound T-shirts. Uh-huh. And he spoke about the cotton trade uh -huh. in the Middle East, in the yeah. UAE. And it takes 50 litres of dyed water per black T-shirt. Oh, so That's heartbreaking. And he spoke about the, the whole system that goes on over in these countries, in India, and how they're so mistreated and how much pollution the, the fashion industry costs. Costs the, the earth, I mean, obviously not money-wise. So with this example where it's like 10 litres, wherever these T-shirts were being made at some point or one place they were being made, there was a lake and there was villages around the lake and there was fishermen who fished in the lake and they used so much of that water that it dried the lake up and it took away the fish, which then had a, an impact on all of the villages. Yeah. So that's just – they're just – some examples. I mean, the one that really gets a bee in my bonnet right now is Bitcoin. Mm. So Bitcoin really does my head in because I don't think people really understand what it takes to make Bitcoins. Mm. Now, I'm no expert, but I do know that there are Bitcoin mines 
that are in places that would make your head spin. So, for example, there's one that is on the border with Tibet in China and it's so high up in the mountains that you need an oxygen mask to go up there and it's on a hydroelectric dam and they use the hydroelectric power to run the computers to make the bitcoins. And it's basically an empty shell of a building with huge exhaust fans that are powerful enough to suck people through them to run the computers. The cooling systems. The cooling systems to make the... And it's not only that, they have to get all that stuff up there, but those computers don't last because they're just churning and burning. So the place is just littered with computer junk. So that's just one example that falls under the Bitcoin umbrella. Yeah. People don't think about it... They think that because it's digital, it's not using power or it's not a fossil fuel. Yeah. But technically, it's burning fossil fuels. It has an impact on on the environment. Huge. I mean, I can't remember the stats off the top of my head, but my understanding was that, I mean, making bitcoins at the moment is just going up and up and up and it burns more energy every day than small countries and definitely more than Google and everything else. Yeah. So... When people talk about sustainability, sustainability doesn't just mean, you know, being obviously good for the environment, right? Like, oh, we're not cutting down trees or we're not polluting the water. Sustainability can mean, well, we can sustain it for this minute, but we're definitely not going to be able to sustain it into the future. You know, it could be that we just don't have the infrastructure to actually continue to produce whatever it is. So, I have a real problem with the term design for good or you know, designed for social good because there's so much more to it than what those words imply. And um, whilst I do believe it's great to design things that are for humans and that are great for humans and make human life better, it's equally as important to think about the broader impact globally at every level um, because it's a butterfly effect. This one little thing that you make today could end up having wiping out a forest and wherever who, who knows yeah, yeah no, absolutely just I'm, I'm trying to bring all my knowledge together um in this one episode that i've accumulated from a lot of interesting conversations that i've had over the last year and i've had a couple recently one with greg bernarda from strategizer who was on two weeks ago it's going to be released soon and he was talking about how over the last 15 years we've become closer to what robots are and we've tried to be really efficient. You know, we're like, we're, we're trying to get as much done as possible. And he said, that's not why we're here. And that's not what humans are about. We need to become more effective. And we need to allow more time to play. And that's really what separates us from the machine. So just looking at the time, what we're coming towards the end of this episode, I suppose. And I think, how, how do we design for that? How do we design to enable people to have more time in their day to spending more meaningfully with their family or it could be socially with their friends or forming bands, writing poetry. That to me is what the next 20 years should look like. We should be working less and we should be playing more. And that's my view. But what I'm really keen to hear is like, do you agree with that? And also what can we do as designers to get to that point? We need to work smarter, not harder. Yeah. And that means saying no. You know, maybe, maybe it's that it could start with designers because 
in general, I find that designers are nice people and always want to say yes. They want to do things that are going to please people. And perhaps to design ourselves into the world that we want to have, we're going to have to learn how to say no more often on a bigger scale. Because even I struggle on a daily basis to say no to people. You know, every time someone asks me, can they have a call with me or a coffee or something, I want to say yes. Yeah, do a podcast. This is pretty good then. Um, I want to say yes, but it's not always as efficient or beneficial or going back to those four elements that I hold, I'm supposed to hold myself to, you know, money, time, energy and attention. Not everything that I allow myself to do is actually holding to those values. Yeah. So, you know, and this is what you talked about. You were talking about... I think you might be quoting me there. (laughs) Yeah. You were talking about how important it is for designers and people in general to hold themselves to their own values and what matters to them and what makes them happy. And, you know, those are the four that I found for myself. Um, And they're not fixed, but it's a practice... A daily practice. It's not something that I'll, I think I'll ever get quite right. I have to keep reminding myself every day to hold myself to those beliefs because, you know, if I want to have, you know, money to do the things that I want to do, time to enjoy the things that I love, Energy. attention, yeah, and attention to give to the people that matter and to myself and the energy to do all of those things. I have to. I have to hold myself to those. And it's no different to when you're designing, you know, for an organisation. You know, there's a set of values and it's our job as designers to, I'd like to say, uncover those because I don't necessarily think that they're something that we make up. Yeah. There's something that we find and we expose the truth and fighting for that truth is really I think the the important part for designers when it comes to eventually designing things that make the world a better place. All right. This is a good point to move into the next segment. So, surely, we have three questions that we always ask guests when they come on the show. And the first question we want to ask you is, what is the one professional skill that you wish you were better at? Saying no. Saying no. That's a beautiful answer. And the second question is, what is the one thing in the industry that you wish you'd be able to banish? The term UX. The term UX, why? Well, firstly, I hate the term user. So user, the word user to me reminds me of being at school and it's what people would call you if you took advantage of them. So when I think of the term user experience, that's what I think of. I don't want to call people users i want to call them people yeah or humans or humans or whatever they are if they're you know doctors nurses patients i'd rather call them that and in actual fact i'm so passionate about this that if i'm on a project and i have a project room i have a sign up on the wall that says you can't use the word users in my room nice and the last question is what is the message you'd give to emerging human-centered design talent for the future? And I use the word human-centered design. It could be, it's interchangeable with UX or service design or anyone who wants to break into the field of design. What advice would you give them for the future? 
Run! No, kidding. <laughs> no, um, I would probably want them to know that the world needs you. Yeah. And that it's going to take you a while to figure out who you are and what it is that you bring to design. And there's going to be a lot of beautiful people who try to tell you that you don't know what you're doing and that the path is the one that they present to you. But it's really important that you don't get glamoured by the methods and by what people tell you that you need to be, that you need to trust your instincts, stay true to who you are and follow the truth because ultimately that's where the best design is. And that's why we do the podcast. Thank you so much, Shirley, for spending some time with me this afternoon. Thank you for having me. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com, where you can request to join the Slack channel and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank you.